0: Welcome to the Mosavar-Romani Center for Business and Government at the Harvard Kennedy School. For more information on events, news, and research, visit www.mrcbg.org.
1: So why don't we go ahead and get started. I'm John Haig. I am co-director of the Mosavar-Romani Center for Business. Um, We are extremely fortunate today to have... Um, so Raghu Rajan with us. Um, just a little, I think most of you know his background. I see some familiar faces in the crowd. Um, but just a couple things. One, he is the Catherine Dusak Miller Distinguished Service Professor of Finance at Chicago's Youth School of Business. Um, he was the 23rd governor of the um, Reserve Bank of India. That was from September of 2013 to September of 2016. Uh, between 2003 and 2006, he was the chief economist for the very funny, I am back. Um, he's written many books and many articles. Um, one most recent one was Fault Minds, How Hidden Fractures Still Threaten the World Economy. He won some awards for Best Business Book of the Year in 2010. Um, he was president of the American Finance Association in 2011. Uh, in the America, he's a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Uh, I think most of you have a sense of his research, and that's why you're here. Uh, clearly, banking, finance, and development. Um, And then, most importantly, he has a new book coming out, or is out, called The Third Pillar, How the State and Markets Are Leaving Communities Behind, and that is the topic for today. And so, um, the other thing I, so this is just a little personal background, I think my first exposure to Raghu um, was when I was talking to my co-director of the center, Larry Summers, a long time ago. Um, And there was some vague discussion of a Jackson Hole conversation in 2005 that that, has stuck in my mind, but I'll leave it to you to go look it up and discover what it is. But with that, I'll I'll turn it over to Raghu. Thank you.
2: Thank you very much, uh,
1: and thanks for coming. Can you hear
2: me in the back? Okay, wonderful. So, um, you know, uh, I always get this question, what's a nice finance guy like you writing about communities? And uh, I have to say, this, this sort of uh, ha- started with my trying to make sense of what capitalism was about and why it was breaking down. Uh, why were there all these movements, uh, uh, sort of uh, angry movements, saying things are not working for us? And, and in the process of trying to discover for myself what I thought capitalism was about uh, and, and what didn't work, I wrote this book. Uh, Let me, the the punchline to some extent is that I think we need to focus far more uh, on what I think is the third pillar of a liberal market society, which is the community. Uh, Much of the 20th century has been about back and forth debates about the role of the government, the state, uh, versus the role of the market, and how much each should play. Uh, Major systems have been created on the idea that there's no role for markets or there's uh, a a minimal role for government. And what I'm arguing is uh, a key part of the balance which makes capitalism work in liberal market societies is the community Uh, working uh, both directly because it provides supports, non-contractual supports to people that are not explicitly written down either in market contracts or in rights from the state. It, It Essentially, by providing those supports helps uh, um, people cope with the upsides and downsides of capitalism. But also through democracy, in which the community is the basic building block, it makes capitalism honest and work uh, for the many. It prevents the almost uh, inevitable degeneration of capitalism into collusion, something that Adam Smith was worried about. And when uh, this sort of uh, honest capitalism sort of works uh, for the many the many support capitalism, so that 's sort of the first part of the book which talks about how we got here and how it 's more than just markets and and uh, and and the state it 's also about the role of the community uh, weakened as the community may be over time, which I'll come to in a second and, and of course, the question is why does this why did the um, liberal market uh, uh, democracy, which works so well in the post-war era, start uh, you know, raising questions. Why do people start raising questions about it uh, over the last 20 years? What's perturbing the balance? And I'll, I'll talk a little bit about that and also potential solutions. So uh, just to get definitions straight and out of the way, what do I mean by the state? I mean the executive judiciary legislature, typically at the center of the country, the federal government, Uh, historically, it's always been about providing security and justice. And and what is interesting is that as the state uh, became constitutionally bound, uh, I trace a little bit of that history, it also created the possibility for markets to become more competitive, for markets not to have uh, structures like guilds, anti-competitive structures, part of which was to protect the market structure against the state. Uh, so I, I talk about how the state essentially became becoming more constitutionally limited, allowed markets to become more competitive and in the process more volatile, and that created the need for more state intervention uh, for volatile markets to create a kind of safety net to buffer society because individual uh, individuals needed that buffering when markets became more volatile, but also. In country after country, the state started providing what I call pre-market support, enhancing the capabilities of individuals, for example, by having public schooling, uh, a a big innovation in the United States. uh, And I'll uh, talk a little more about it. So the state provided both pre-market support as well as a safety net uh, as uh, it, uh, it, it unleashed markets. Markets themselves, I'm talking about the range of markets, goods markets, labor market, capital markets, and, of course, firms, which are uh, strong players in the market. And what these do is uh, the obvious things, allow greater productivity and efficiency through competition, and, of course, through innovation, more choice to people. And finally, I talk about the community, and, and this is probably where the most controversial definition in the book comes in, i largely focus on the local community, the proximate community. That is not to rule out other notions of community. Now, today we have virtual communities, which uh, we have flash mobs which get uh, formed on the spot. But I want to focus on a more uh, lasting, reliable community, uh, the, the local community, in which I include local governments and institutions like schools. Um, so why does the community still matter today? And I would argue that it's a large source of our identity and values. We always talk about the community we are from when we talk about the values that that sort of infuse us. It also still, even today, provides that non-contractual sort of filling in holes, filling in holes that the government leaves, that the markets leave. For example, in uh, the Great Recession, when many in Southern Europe lost their jobs, lost their unemployment insurance, Where did they go? They went back to their villages. They went back to their parents' house and stayed there. There was no question that they could do that because the community was filling in the holes left by the the market and and the state. Uh, But as much as the community is about filling in holes in pre-market and post-market supports, I also think about the community as very important in political organization, that it is the basic building block for political organization. And in that, it is very important. None of this is to rule out other forms of community. If you're in a cosmopolitan city today, you'll say, I have no community, uh, but I have professional organizations, I have my, my colleagues at work, I have uh, uh, you know, professional friends uh, across the country. That's fine. Uh, you will see much of what I talk about can be done, uh, but not, not fully. To keep a sense of what I mean by community, let's focus on the proximate community, and we can have a debate later on. So this is my model for the book, right? Uh, It's not in the book, but this is the model. Uh, The blue arrows are what we've already talked about, Uh, what each one of these three pillars, the state, the markets, and the community do. The green arrows are what I think are different and, and talked about in the book, that is part of this balance is a different form of interaction. For example, what contains the state and limits its ability to act arbitrarily? What is the constitutional limitation on the state? You would say it's the Constitution. But of course, what is the backing to the Constitution? The US Constitution was imposed on Liberia, but we don't think Liberia is a liberal democratic society in the same way as the US is. Why didn't the Constitution work there? because it didn't have the same distribution of power, I would argue. And a big part of that distribution of power is a competitive market economy where the private sector is independent of the government, doesn't rely on the government for its continued existence. This is why in many emerging markets, you find the private sector is totally blind. Uh, what the government wants, the private sector does, because it's reliant on the government for licenses, for tariffs, for, uh, tariff support, for credit, Uh, often there's a uh, public sector banking system offering credit, very different from a somewhat more independent private sector. I won't say it's fully independent, but in the United States, where, for example, the Washington Post can regularly chastise the government because it's independently funded and doesn't necessarily directly rely on the government for funding. So that independent countervailing power is an important function of markets And I would argue those who say let's eliminate the markets and create a democratic society are missing an important part of what markets do, that is create an independent source of power from the government, which helps preserve democracy. The second aspect that I want to talk about is the community. The community, uh, because it is more dispersed, because it doesn't have the power and influence that the the, uh, big firms have, is essentially something that keeps the system honest. It rises up when it feels opportunities are being crowded out and says, we want those opportunities. And to that extent, because it's outside the system of influence, through democratic oversight, the community helps keep capitalism honest. One example of this is the populist movements in the United States in the late 1800s, uh, which essentially rose up saying, uh, for example, the farmers uh, the populist farmers said, We are being charged extremely high interest rates uh, by the banks. We are being uh, essentially held over a barrel because, the, uh, because of the uh, fact that the dollar is tied to gold. And of course, the railroads, which are supposed to transport our grain, are increasingly getting monopolized and charging us extortionary rates. So, this was a movement against the collusion between the state and large private firms saying, we need to restore the balance. Uh, and that that helped. I mean, uh, the various antitrust acts, in some sense, were as a result of the populist movement. You could even argue that Glass-Steagall, which separated commercial and investment banking, even though it came in the Depression, was a consequence of the populist followed by the progressive movement. So, these movements arise today, the parallel would be the movement against big tech. There's too much agglomeration of power here. We worry about closeness of big tech potentially with the state. Uh, let us find a way to break break some of this power. Some of it is just against powerful big tech, some of it is against uh, collaboration with the state. Uh, and finally, the community provides values and norms. One of the interesting um, um, thoughts that flows through the book is that our values and norms keep changing. It's not a a given. And that sometimes provides some of the corrective and restoring the balance. Um, As one example, I mean, in this country, uh, the notion that there is a potential, uh, sort of a potential oligarchy uh, would be laughed out uh, 15 years ago. Uh, And now it is a mainstream view uh, probably not the dominant view, but certainly a mainstream view, uh, that there are, you know, budding oligarchies in uh, in various parts of uh, of the U.S. economy. So, wh- why uh, what what all this leads up to is I talk about the balance that was reached post World War II uh, in the glorious thirty years of growth that uh, that we had, uh, essentially when the liberal market democracy was thought of as The the, the final system, the system that we we had arrived to, it worked well. And, of course, this was further reinforced a little later with the fall of communism. This was the dominant system. What creates imbalances? Great calamity creates imbalances. For example, the two Great Depressions, 1873 to 1893 or 1929 to 1939, but also technological change. These disrupt. And because they disrupt, they essentially cause society to try try and look for a new balance. Next three slides, I'm going to talk about some of the main ways the information and communication technology revolution has disrupted the balance in society. So one way is it has certainly changed markets. Um, One, it's made global production much more easy than used to be in the past. And of course, this has disrupted certain segments which were protected when global production was not possible. Uh, Just think about manufacturing. We can do manufacturing anywhere, uh, partly because transportation costs have fallen, but partly also real-time control of manufacturing is possible. We know exactly where we are in production in the Thai factory today, and we can make adjustments depending on how much production we see coming. What this creation of global supply chains has done is it has allowed us to produce wherever most efficient. And that's problematic, because earlier, uh, manufacturing workers were protected by the fact that there was a lot of R&D and design, as well as marketing and finance, that had to be done in the large markets, that is, in the industrial countries. And therefore, manufacturing had to be located nearby. Now, when we can manufacture anywhere, but do the R&D and the design still in the industrial countries, manufacturing no longer has that protection which then creates deep stress for manufacturing workers in these countries. Now, some of this is, is, is hack to all of you, but it does create a divergence. The R&D workers in megacities, uh, you know, uh, again, generalizing uh, very quickly, while the manufacturing workers in Steel City, Illinois, they experience very different outcomes mm-hmm. as a re- result of globalization. Um, some of you, the, the off-cited example is Apple. Which manufactured I think its last product in the United States in two thousand and four doesn 't manufacture anymore in the u s it You pay a thousand dollars for the iPhone. I think about three hundred today is what uh, Foxconn gets for producing everything that 's contained there, but Apple keeps seven hundred for the value added coming from the intellectual property, etc. Great for Apple, one of the most profitable companies in the world. Uh, it does put stress on those who used to assemble or manufacture some of the parts in the U.S. Uh, earlier. Uh, what this does is it is contributes to the hollowing of middle-income jobs uh, because they're being outsourced away. Economists would tell you the more important r- reason for hollowing out is technology, that we have automated far more, including in services. But, of course, the greater impact is found in manufacturing where many of the uh, sort of manufacturing relies on large firms and small towns, and if the large firm closes down, the small town is much more depressed. So the community impact uh, the, the automation has more impact on jobs uh, outsourcing has more community impact, but together they have essentially hollowed out the middle income jobs. The factory worker who earned a good living is less and less uh, is more and more rare. And, of course, the tax accountant who used to do your taxes for you has been replaced by TurboTax and is no longer around, right? So those are concerns. And in addition to the fact that there's a hollowing out of the middle, there is a superstar nature to the new kinds of jobs. Because you have such a large market you can deal with, um, essentially you can play on that larger market. That makes a, a very big difference in remuneration. The really good players get a lot more income than the slightly less good players. Uh, This is Elizabeth Billington. Now, some of you uh, may recognize her only from the fact that she was the example Sherwin Rosen used in his paper on superstars. Elizabeth Billington was the star of the London Opera in 1801. Uh, She filled the Opera House. Uh, Her take was between 10,000 and 15,000 pounds, which, you know, adjusted for inflation, is about a million dollars today. Now, that lady, uh, somebody guess who she is? Our young people know. Taylor Swift. (laughs) Taylor Swift earned $170 million in 2016. She, because there was no recording, you had to hear her, and she probably touched 100,000 people a session. Uh, a season, right? You know, even if she filled the opera house, her latest song is downloaded five billion plus times, right? See the difference in markets. Therefore, the difference in incomes. What this is saying is, we're increasingly becoming a superstar. Uh, more and more professions are dominated by superstar firms and superstar uh, uh, individuals, and that does increase the skewness of income because of technological change. Um. Second, even as markets have expanded, the state has expanded to keep pace. And this is going a little contrary to the traditional view that the state and markets are are substitutes, one expands the other contracts. Often they move together. And this, anybody who looks at the size of state in developed countries can see, just run a regression, you'll see immediately richer countries typically have a bigger state. Some of that comes from the fact that as markets have become more integrated, governance spas have also integrated. Typically, what this means is, earlier, give you an example, capital requirements for banks were set at the community level. Why? Because the bank used to be a community bank and didn't do any business outside. So towns used to set capital requirements. Then banks started functioning across the entire state. So states used to set capital requirements. Then they became national banks, the nation used to set capital requirements. Today the multinational banks, much of capital requirements are determined in Basel. So what this means is as markets integrate, the state also integrates and pulls up powers outside the local community. It, it migrates upwards. An example would be the European Union, where one of the biggest resentments is so much is determined at the union level and people feel they've lost control of their own country. In fact, that's the Brexit sort of uh, cry to arms, saying, take back control. And uh, the, the, the reason is there's a feeling uh, powers has vanished. But even as powers have vanished, the need for the community to do more has increased. On the one hand, we've seen that different communities are differently affected. So each community has a different problem. It's not the same problem in San Francisco as it is in Granite City, Illinois, or even in the Pilsen neighborhood of Chicago. They're very different problems that they have to face. but also. Uh, What has happened is the community, apart from the traditional reasons it has weakened because the state has withdrawn some powers, markets have taken away powers, is the community itself is becoming much less integrated. What do I mean by that? Think about the fact that schooling has become much more important. If you're a parent and you're trying to decide where you're going to put your kid in school, what are you going to think about? You're going to say, I'm going to put my kid, if I want the best life chances for that kid, in the best, in the, in the most expensive school that I can afford. Uh, often that means moving to a, a community which is really expensive and going to a public school there, or going to a private school in, in your community and keeping away, them away from the larger mass of people. Why does this make sense? It makes sense because as you move up the income scale, the kids that your kid is surrounded with are typically much better prepared. They've heard many more words uh, from their professional parents in early childhood. They m- have been much better fed. They have been inculcated with, uh, with more business-like values. Uh, they learn better. And one of the biggest factors in determining your, determining your learning is who else is in the classroom with you. So if you're a parent deciding where you want to go to maximize your kid's future it's pick the neighborhood, which is the most expensive you can afford, and hope that everybody else doesn't follow you. Of course, zoning laws, etc., prevent everybody else from following. And what you have, then, is the secession of the successful. The successful are going into enclaves of their own, and the rest, certainly in this country, can't follow because of zoning laws. It's too expensive because multifamily homes are not allowed in that neighborhood. You need a big one-acre residence, and you can't afford it. What you see increasingly in the US is this phenomenon, that there are fewer neighborhoods in the middle of the income distribution, many more at the extremes, very rich and very poor. And you can understand how that happens because the very rich secede, leaving the very poor behind, and you get both, both, both. Uh, So the disintegration of the mixed community, or put differently, what we've achieved is that nirvana for the middle class, a true meritocracy, because that's what technology has created, Unfortunately, it's also become a hereditary meritocracy, and that is something that nobody actually planned for or wanted. So what this creates is anger from the people left behind because they no longer have the opportunity, which is so central to capitalism. Opportunity is killed right at the outset because they don't have access to the right schools. They don't have the right. Uh, uh. Now, in this populist upheaval, it's, it's often easy to blame the wrong sort of segments. Um, uh, you blame the corrupt elite, of course. There is, uh, you know, uh, there is a, uh, some corruption. You know, we saw that recently in the admissions to Ivy League uh, institutions. Uh, but there's also, uh, uh, you know, there's a tendency to blame the other. Our plight is not because technology forces us to gain more skills. It's because the immigrants have taken the jobs, or because those foreign firms cheat when uh, when. Uh, they show higher, when our jobs go abroad, it's because they have kept their exchange rate undervalued and not because they have higher productivity. So there's a tendency to cast the finger around and say the others are to blame. But of course, if you say others are to blame, you position yourself very poorly for the future because technology is gonna progress without any question. And therefore, if you haven't adapted your skills, you're gonna be left out. No matter what you do on outsourcing, no matter what you do on trade, technology is the insidious inside uh, force, the Trojan horse, which is going to create problems for society. Uh, so we have to adapt. Similarly, with population aging and with the high unfunded entitlements that we have, somebody has to do the work, and increasingly, I mean, it's clear that robots will take some time coming. So till those robots show up, perhaps we need some immigrants to do the work. doesn't mean uncontrolled immigration. It does mean uh, that some immigration may may be necessary in how to uh, do that when you have population aging, a blanket ban on immigration is probably not wise for any of the industrial countries that are aging. And and, and finally, I mean, uh, with aging populations, certainly from the experience of Japan, you see that there might be limited domestic demand. Well, then you're dependent on demand from outside, from the young populations of the world. Where are the young populations? They're there, not here. They're in the Middle East, they're in Africa, they're in South Asia. If you want to be able to export to them down the line, not so distant future, better not erect barriers today because it's going to become problematic. In other words, we cannot afford a balkanized world, which often is the proposal to resurrect the uh, uh, growth of industrial countries. Of course, the balkanized world makes it much harder to deal with current problems like climate change. Let me end with, uh, with some thoughts on solutions. Now, one of the problems in these kinds of situations, uh, I'll be frank with you, is it seems to me what the system needs is change at the margin rather than radical change. But of course, people in this environment want really radical change. They want to eliminate capitalism, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And what I keep focusing on is there is a balance. Mm-hmm. And you cannot get rid of one big part of this balance and hope to preserve the other parts of the system. Get rid of markets. It's not clear democracy will persist. Name one socialist country which is democratic. Anybody? So this is the kind of balance that we need to preserve. We have to be very careful about proposing radical solutions, which also, to some extent, then becomes a sort of perceived weakness of this kind of argument. We have a problem... Where are the radical solutions? No, the solutions are all at the margin. How do we prevent the secession of the successful? How do we create more integrated neighborhoods? How do we keep people from from leaving and and staying in their communities? Those are the kinds of questions we have to answer. Nevertheless, there is a broad plan in this book, and the argument is, for the world we live in, uh, at least we have to keep markets open. We have to keep goods and services markets open. We've discovered that that's one of the biggest ways we keep... Uh, this, this world uh, being efficient, that's what also we need if we are to preserve competition uh, domestically. So I argue that, yes, take back some sovereignty from the sovereignty that you've dispersed into international organizations, into the Euro area, etc., in, into the um, uh, European Union, but exercise that sovereignty responsibly. We need global solutions in many ways. We cannot all say, I'm going to make my country great, because that's going to make somebody else worse off. We all have to sit together and work out these things. So take back sovereignty, but exercise it responsibly. That's the first part. Within countries which are already mixed, it seems to me it's very hard to go back without a real strong apartheid system. So you have to allow for a mixed uh, 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 ethnically mixed um, uh, country. How do you do that? Well, it seems to me we all have the blueprint uh, in the United States, in France, in India. It's called civic nationalism. You are a member of the country if you sign up and say, "I belong to the," I, I adhere to the values of the country. But within that civic nationalism, you have to have a way cultures can be expressed. And I would I argue in the book. You want cultures to be expressed at the community level rather than the national level in diverse countries. At the national level, it seems like imposition to everybody else if there is one uh, sort of common culture. Uh, that culture should be more about values rather than about ethnicity. And at the local level, it is where you say, uh, this, is my na- uh, this is my historical culture, and you express it more vividly. Of course, uh, as I emphasize the community As part of the answer, I also talk about uh, many more place-based sort of attempts uh, to generate revival in the community, but I caution against centralized place-based approaches which typically don't have the right answers. As with development, we found aid itself is not that effective in enhancing growth, but when a country wants to drive itself up, and when there is an upwelling in that country, finance can help uh, uh, sort of uh, the country move itself out. So I-, I talk about localism, but I also talk about it being inclusive. That is, you're a community within a country. So the barriers to flows of people and goods from within the country are relatively small, even though you're, you're, you're a community without high walls. So uh, uh, finally, let me uh, end with this. Uh, Localism is uh, about community leadership essentially trying to develop solutions for the community. Uh, It implies greater powers. Often, as the powers have moved up to the nation and then outside the nation, the community has become disempowered. I'm talking about pushing back more powers to the community. Uh, For example, the power, greater power to develop curriculum which are more locally relevant in the local schools rather than having that curricula developed at the nation's capital or elsewhere. Part of the safety net could also be decentralized to the locality. Here's the top up to your unemployment insurance that comes from the community seeing that this is a case which needs to be uh, helped. Uh, And uh, I I would call for more engagement uh, locally and I think we have technology to do that. So even as technology becomes a problem, it can be part of the solution. For example, in Chicago, there's an app which allows you to focus on potholes, pinpoint where the potholes are, it shows up on the site, and then the uh, municipal authorities have to tell you when they fixed it. So that kind of technology allows both engagement uh, and, uh, and some kind of monitoring of local officials. One of the big concerns about localism is local officials will be corrupt, will be less effective. We have ways to change that today. Um, Of course, we need infrastructure, uh, linking communities. uh, And, for example, many communities in the U.S. today don't have broadband. And in this day and age, without having broadband access, you basically are severely limited in what you can do. And finally, funding, I would push more funding down to the community level. The contrast with centralized place-based policies is that it's not about the center saying, we're going to declare this an opportunity zone, therefore we're going to reduce the cost of capital flowing here, we're saying that may be helpful, but over and above the private community, uh, about the community itself deciding that it wants change. Example I give in my book is the Pilsen neighborhood in Chicago. It had horrendous rates of crime. Uh, The rates of crime were approaching those uh, that were in the US in World War II. Not the US, in Germany in World War II. what it did was, essentially, through community effort, it brought down the crime rates. The community decided enough is enough. And with the leadership of the churches locally, they started identifying the hotspots for crime. They turned out to be bars. They petitioned the city to close down the bars. Once the bars closed down, the aggregation of criminal activity uh, was no longer possible. Then they started bringing out people when, com- when, when, when sort of there was... Uh, uh, when there were incidents, so that the people crowded out the criminals. They couldn't go on a, uh, on a spree. Moreover, the people could call the police and say, I saw thus and such person. No single person was identified with reporting to the police. I mean, these seem very, very micro level uh, uh, sort of, uh, actions. But this is the point, that a lot of community action is about local level actions, which can make the community far more hospitable to business. Pilsen is now an up-and-coming neighborhood in Chicago, but it was truly important they fixed crime first before business saw it as a place worth investing in. They boast of having McDonald's and a variety of fast-food restaurants. This is a neighborhood where McDonald's is actually uh, an upgradation in terms of the jobs it creates, because at least it has a job which pays something, as opposed to what they had earlier. So, The broader point is that uh, we need uh, more localized policies, Uh, in order to elevate the areas that are falling behind typically won't work with nationalized policies. This is a problem of within-country development similar to the problem of national development. So let me end here. The uh, whole point is it is inclusive. The state and markets keep the walls around the community low. And if this looks like a contradiction in terms, it's not. I mean, in many ways, you can think of the Commerce Clause in the United States Constitution as trying to do is uh, precisely this. States have the ability to determine a lot, including how production takes place, what the minimum wage will be, but they don't have any ability to limit the flow of goods from other states into that state. They can't put specific tariffs on goods produced in Massachusetts if it comes into Texas. That's having your cake and eating it too, allowing more community power, that is state power in this case, while having a national market. To some extent, that's the new balance we need to go to, more empowered communities living well within an inclusive nation and inclusive markets. Let me stop there. uh, I'm happy to take questions. Strongman economics in a number of countries, which is defined as aggressive leaders,
1: and policies, and hypernationalist. So, and that has a direct impact, that is the state impact on the markets and community.
2: So does that mean that the institutions should push back like a strong governor of a central bank <laughs> or other institutions? So what is the countervailing power to push back hyper-nationalism with
0: ad hoc policies?
2: Yeah, no, this, this is a real uh, question. When people are angry, they're willing to hear um, sort of ad hoc or radical solutions, and the populist nationalists have what seems to be a, uh, you know, an attractive solution. It's those other guys, it's the minorities, They're the guys who are responsible for stealing your jobs, and trust me, I will put you back on even keel, right? Um, And of course, uh, the extent to which populist nationalism has, has sort of dominated in different countries depends to some extent on the countervailing power. I would argue that in the United States, we've had more of that countervailing power, and therefore, you know, the judiciary has pushed back, the private sector has pushed back, uh, and I think the two aren't unrelated. There is a semblance of alternatives. Uh, I look at India, and I see the press basically clapping every time uh, another uh, sort of um, action is taken, which is aggressive. Uh, The private sector is very much dependent on the government for favor and rarely steps out of line. Uh, uh, the, The... Sort of example I give is when they asked how good the budget is, it's always ten on ten or eleven on ten. So uh, that's the sense in which uh, they cowed, and I think that's problematic. Uh, I do believe that uh, you know before it's too late, democracy can can intervene, but there is a point of no return, and that's what many of these countries have to confront: have they crossed the point of no return or not? Uh, uh, the lady up here, then the gentleman back there.
0: Thank you. So the topic of the upcoming twenty in Japan is actually recoupling, and, uh, which means like reintegrating social values into uh, the global market economy and the like. And the premise of this new recoupling initiative is actually global paradigm change. So coming up with global solutions, but we need to change the system so those solutions work for everybody and are more inclusive. So it's very interesting to hear your argument from what I understood you believe that we don't necessarily need a systemic change, but we do need marginal adjustments to reintegrate like this left behind concept of the community into the existing structures. So my question is in a world where the incentives (laughs) are are aligned for decoupling, What's the, where that is the predominant trend, how do you reverse <coughs> engineer social values and community when, do the, when they actually sound more like an afterthought as opposed to an organic part of the existing system without changing it?
2: Right. Uh, it's, a, it's a great question, right? So how, do you, how does the political economy of bringing all this about uh, sort of emerge, and where does it emerge from? And to some extent, uh, that's the part that I've left out of the book because it varies from country to country, uh, from political situation to political situation. I thought the first point, first uh, sort of uh, way of doing this is to first lay out where we want to go, which is different from where, uh, you know, as you said, we need a global uh, strategy. And my sense is global strategies have less and less effect today. We need. Uh, more domestic, even local strategies, simply because people don't feel the sense of agency with global strategies. So how do we engineer that? Uh, That's a more difficult question. Uh, And I think uh, to some extent, the anger of the people is part So the Brexiteers are causing some re-examination of how much power has gone out of uh, the UK. But I think they're mistaken if they think bringing power back to London is going to satisfy people. A lot of the anger is from the regions vis-a-vis London, that too much power is in London. So my sense is that the democratic process will create some of the needed change. The value systems will also change to create some of the needed change. Uh, But we, we need time for that to happen because the anger is really palpable. And if you have systemic change before that happens, it may be difficult to reverse. Uh, I think uh, some of the industrial countries with better institutions have more time. Emerging markets have less time. And uh, uh, it could be that the institutions are subverted before that change happens. Uh, the gentleman back there. Yeah. About, yeah. Thank you, Dr. Azim, for being here. Um, This is a, uh, to think of the post-war, the post-second war order for 30 years as something of an ideal type.
3: um, That was characterized in my view and in the view of many other people as sort of embedded liberalism, meaning that markets embedded in society. And I see that framework as slightly different from yours in which you see the community as an independent pillar from market rather than markets being embedded in that community. But, But do you think that at least one of the ways that we're looking forward in order to hold up the edifice of liberal capitalism, is to actually subject the market to some controls of the community or society, and that,
2: at the very least, would include the power of local government to tax businesses, for example. You
3: know, increase the rate of so that the so the distribution of rents from the market is ultimately subject to some form of social control, because that seems to have been the slide
1: between sort of that liberalism and neoliberalism of the nineteen nineties, and, and and you
2: know where we are today. So, uh, I mean, I I think that's a possibility that could be explored. I'm a little worried about erecting barriers to markets because uh, they could become uh, self-serving by a narrow group within the community, right? So I'm a little worried about capture of the community also. And that's where I think the inclusive part of inclusive localism prevents too much capture. If you're exposed to competition, there's only so much you can do locally to, to move you away from what is a reasonably productive path. Uh, that said, uh, I, I think that some of what you want will happen as a result of value, uh, changes in values. And, and this is why I, I think, I mean, uh, take a look at uh, Bollywood movies, uh, where it used to be that the uh, villain was a businessman with a uh, cigarette in one hand and a cup of whiskey in the other and maybe a, uh, a, a mall floating around. Uh, that has changed considerably. Uh, and today, the view of a successful businessman is, uh, I mean, businessmen are heroes, along with the love interest, uh, who's also an entrepreneurial uh, sort of uh, lady jetting around the world. Uh, contrast with the U.S. So India probably needs a little more markets and that value system seems consistent with that. In the U.S. perhaps uh, there's a concern about markets having gone too far and the example is a children's movie, uh, um, uh, Lord uh, uh, the Lego movie, uh, essentially have, having Lord Business as the villain. Now think of the irony, right? This is a, uh, a, a movie buy a company in order to sell more LEGO toys, but which has a commercial villain, uh, Lord Business. Uh, that suggests how l- more to the left some of these movies have become in the US. I think that's a reflection of changing values in the system. Uh, I think neither, all, are, all of these are caricatures and don't capture the full uh, sort of detail, but reflect a, a changing dialogue. Uh, lady back there, I'll come to you next.
4: Thank you for a really interesting talk, Dr. Rajan. Um, I'm a long time admirer of your time as the RBI governor. And I was just curious about um, whether you addressed this aspect in your book. Um, so when I, I was working in the parliament in 2016-17 when the whole GST debate was happening. And one of the fundamental reasons the government was using to justify its push of GST was that the state is the best um, organ to redistribute benefits. and um, from the welfare perspective, it just makes more sense for there to be more centralized control. Um, so I guess my question is at two levels. Do you think that communities are equipped um, even with lower levels of education to decide what is their own maximum level of welfare and second, um, do you think that the argument of standardization being sacrificed at the altar of decentralization is a meritorious argument?
2: Yeah. I mean, these are difficult questions, right? I mean. I can visualize some circumstances in which standardization makes sense. But I would typically argue that you know, having a voice expressed on that is, is not a bad thing. Now, you will say, well, if 100 voices speak in different directions, when do we ever get standardization? Well, if it's that important, there should be carve-out circumstances. But this, this reflects the difficulty of, of actually doing some of these things in reality. Take, for example, welfare one of the arguments against welfare is not so much that uh, i mean the historical argument against welfare has always been uh, of uh, funding the, um, the the lazy right uh, the um, undeserving other and that's an argument which is going on in india today uh, after the congress proposed this uh, this uh, universal uh, sort of income uh, and and the the difficulty uh, uh, there is yes there are some very poor deserving poor. How do you tell the difference? And historically, welfare was at the local level because you could tell the difference. Now, communities are overwhelmed by national disaster, and so it's very hard for them to continue that. So, in a sense, the ideal would be much of it provided by the state, but some of it, the top-up, to be provided locally, especially the contingent stuff. If your unemployment insurance runs out, Well, the state has provided for some time. Now there still might be deserving cases. Will the local have a better sense of what that is? But as important as the local having knowledge is local engagement. That is, you feel responsible for others in your neighborhood rather than going to a completely anonymous society. I think Jim Poturba has done some work showing that with the advent of Social Security, elders in the community paid much less attention to schooling for the young because they were essentially protected, they no longer had to care. Now, I don't know uh, where, I mean, this is a part of that that argument that allow a little bit of welfare judgment to go down. Are they equipped? Well, this is demand and supply, right? Once there's a demand, supply will be forthcoming, and uh, the community will then be, you know, will be structured to take advantage of that. There's a lot of argument they can never do it. I don't think we can say that until we try. Uh, there and then, I suppose.
1: In, in your book, do you look at global problems like climate change and how you would address that in the local community?
2: Yeah, I mean, some of these are not subject to uh, to local solutions, right? You need to talk uh, globally. That's where the responsible sovereignty came in—that you have a responsible for the responsibility for the global commerce. <laughs> And so your sovereignty has to be exercised responsibly. So you do put the global solution to your democracy to judge. Is this something we want to go to? But if they, if they agree to it, that's what becomes your contribution to the global solution. So I would say there's a little bit of back and forth. You don't decide everything in a closed room in Paris. Uh, you do sort of say, okay, these are potentially commitments I can work out. Go back check with your people that that's reasonable, go back and say, I'm going to do this. That has much more likelihood of succeeding than something agreed there, and you get immediate pushback, we don't agree with this, doesn't make sense. And and, and it gives more legitimacy to the international agreement.
3: Arsos. Uh, two, two of your arguments about empowering the local um, community are, I think, unmistakable. Um, the sense of agency and, and local engagement, and, and two uh, some problems uh, have uh, the problem local knowledge. Um, national capitals cannot quite figure out uh, what the what what the source of the problem in a, local, in a community might be, and, and the community itself. Local community itself would have greater understanding of that. But there is um, a famous Ambedkar uh, objection. To and also an objection that emerged from the African American government. Um, argued that uh, the countryside was a cesspool for Dalits and migration to the city uh, was likely to be a site of uh, empowerment and liberation, I use the term site of liberation. Similarly in America it was argued that uh, migration of blacks from the rural south to the cities would uh, be a site of liberation. For all the difficulties that might emerge, but be a much better place than 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 the than the rural community. So, do you think that the argument about empowering the local community um, would have to be different for rural communities versus urban communities, or or highly stratified rural communities versus less stratified urban communities? In other words, how would you deal with America? Yeah.
2: So uh, Ambedkar, for those of you uh, who are wondering who he was, was the uh, leader of the, uh, what are today called the Dalits, the uh, sort of, uh, want of a better word, the backward caste. The, uh, and um, uh, he was also a person instrumental in writing India's constitution, a very learned gentleman. And uh, he was, uh, had a running fight with Gandhi, and uh, one of his arguments was, was, was that uh, uh, one of his concerns was the village structure. And I think similarly with the African Americans, the worry was that uh, funding to the states would not flow to the African Americans in the southern states because they were uh, much more uh, sort of segregationist at the state level than the federal government was. And so Johnson had this famous community community based action where he wanted to bypass the states and go directly to the community. So uh, let me say the first thing, it may be that we need to rethink what the community means. That is, in the Dalit structure, it would be creating a kind of uh, Dalit group which is more empowered and more funded rather than funding at the overall sort of village level where they... and, And I think increasingly as people move... That, that sort of, and find the groupings that might be possible. Uh, similarly, uh, Johnson tried to do that. There was a problem, however, which I will recognize in what you just said, which is that without any official structures for the black community, there's a very big question of do we fund the activists in the community, do we fund the uh, local mayor who's not necessarily sympathetic to the cause of African-Americans, or do we sort of create mm-hmm a new set of leaders. And, and the problem there was because the community didn't spontaneously sort of create that leadership structure, it created chaos. Uh, so I recognize the problem when the community is a subpart of a broader group and is not empowered within that broader group. And that clearly has to be dealt with very carefully. Ideally, you would like to empower the subpart. But you want to not upset the existing structures of power too much, because that could also create chaos. So it's it's a it's a good problem. I think it's a question of defining what you mean by the relevant community for action. Uh, but it it is not uh, that easily solved. Uh, 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 gentle, uh, gentleman there, and then the lady. Uh,
0: your resolution to the problem is. To push power back from international to local, Uh, I'm not sure if
2: it it is a fair uh, question. Which is, uh, what's your take on the Brexit? Do you think uh, a right solution to the UK? Yeah. Um, Look, I I don't think it's the right solution. I think it reflects the anger, and and therefore, uh, I mean, ideally, what I would what. What I think, uh, I mean, the the problem to some extent with the European Union, right? The union moved much faster on aggregating powers at the union level, without people coming on board, and now a bunch of countries are saying we've given up so much power over immigration, over over rules for business, et cetera, et cetera, and we didn't know that we were giving up this power, and so now it's let's take the power back, but. You know, it's hard to extricate yourself from the European Union as we've seen with, uh, with, uh, with Brexit. I mean, so I'm saying that in some sense the, the desire is understandable. The solution seems much more uh, sort of chaotic because you've gotten so entangled within the European Union that extricating yourself is really very, very difficult, right? So I'm not saying Brexit is the right solution, but take from that a caution too much power moving up eventually causes a democratic reaction. And that's what we're seeing in in in, in, London, in, in UK. Thank you, Dr. Um, there that, that probably has to be the last question, given your time. Yeah. Your time. And, well, let's...
4: Uh, uh, I've worked in many, uh, for many years in India uh, in rural and urban uh, financial inclusion. And particularly in rural areas, we have... the. Cooperative banks, the primary agricultural cooperative societies, the regional rural banks—extremely um, dysfunctional, uh, uh, politically managed, and so on and so forth. So I'm, I'm worried about. Uh, in your, um, I, I conceptually completely agree about the fact that the local needs to be empowered and has to have a sense of ownership. But I don't see the institutional structures. Uh, to make that happen, I worked with a local area bank, one of the few the RBI had ever authorized uh, inside of basics, and um, they, there weren't many more of them. So I don't really know what the institutional structures there are to enable this in a country like you.
2: Well, um, so we should be—I I, I see your uh, your point, and, and this is a common concern. Once you push power locally, do you create local mafias? Uh, uh and and that 's where the keeping it open to national influence comes in the the inclusive part of inclusive localism uh, that said uh, I mean uh, yes, there is a possibility of c- capture and and yes, we have seen instances of it, but it can be combated as you said uh you know it is possible to create more uh, uh, commercially minded local banks which are further removed from uh, the dominance by politicians of these cooperative banks. Essentially, the cooperative banks in India have been captured by the politicians. Uh, I dealt with them on on a daily basis because we had to bail out one after the other, and uh, with, with no questions asked, because they were uh, uh, you know uh, that was the nature of the deal. Uh, but but I think the uh, the answer has to be that yes, we are in a new era where we have different ways of controlling some of this, and it has to be both bottom-up and top-down. Bottom-up in the sense the people have to be more engaged in monitoring what happens, and they have to have some of their skin in the game. It can't be just, uh, I mean, those cooperative banks, they're being bailed out centrally, and so there's no local skin in the game. And of course, from the center, whatever funds are allocated locally, there has to be much more transparency as well so that the local area uh, local people know what's coming in and how to make better control of it in other words I am aware of the concerns about uh, local dominance we had that in this country also with uh, uh, with the dominance of mafia of uh, political structures Tammany Hall you know, for example in in, in New York uh, that is a possibility uh, but there are checks and balances against that today and to the extent we can have revived democratic engagement locally you can you can remember Uh, remove some of that problem. I think that's about what time we have. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you very much.